everyone. Welcome to season two of the Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender. And here again is my co-host, Dr. Erica Fisk. So we took a little bit of a hiatus, uh, but now we're back to uh, producing new episodes. And in the meantime, we actually did get a shout out from Wealth Magazine. It's a business and strategy magazine. And we were noted to be one of the 20 best innovation podcasts of last year. And today we have a recurring guest as well, Dr. Fred Lamb. And he's joined us in the past on a couple of episodes. Welcome, Fred. Thanks. Great to be here. And thank you, Wealth Magazine. <laughs> hey, you know what? We, we take the accolades where we get them. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> Today, what we uh, want to talk about is uh, health technology innovation. And uh, there have been many discussions in US about moving to a more universal healthcare system, like a Medicare for all uh, type of strategy. And there are a lot of arguments that this may actually hinder uh, health technology innovation. So we wanted to discuss issues at hand and make some comparisons to uh, some of the other health industries in other countries, such as Canada, France, and Britain. And so Canada is a semi-socialized uh, healthcare system, both public and private, and also very dependent on the provinces. And uh, whereas, uh, you know, the, the British system is more of a true socialized healthcare system. Uh, so we brought Freddie in because he and I both have experience in the Canadian system as well as the U.S. system. Uh, and I think he'll have a lot of pearls uh, to share with us in this. So try. <laughs> you'll try. You'll try. It's all on your shoulders, Fred. There uh, we go. <laughs> so why don't we start with how is technology funded, you know, in uh, the U.S.? And Fred, I'm going to throw this out to you. You've been involved in a lot more basic science research here in the U.S. I think when it comes to basic science research or even medical device research, healthcare innovation, there is several tiers and avenues of funding that can be had in terms of how we approach the research. So in academia, for example, when I was doing my fellowship at one of the Boston uh, teaching hospitals, I had funding to test medical devices for a certain company, and this was funded by the company. Of course, there was a full disclosure of all data that was gathered and fair reporting of the results in a very kind of open and transparent way to eliminate bias and all of those negative things that have been associated in the past in terms of industry funding. So that's one avenue of funding that I experienced. Now, when I was doing basic science research at MIT, a lot of funding was, again, dual streamed. One was federal grants. So my mentor had National Institutes of Health funding, and this is federal government funding for a very specific research proposal. All dollar amounts have to be accounted for because it comes from a federal body, and all of that is accessible across the nation. There's also ability at these higher academic centers to engage donors. So I was also funded by private donors. Yeah. And these private donors uh, had a specific project in mind and how they wanted their money used for research. And so, for example, I had a privileged opportunity to be funded by donors who wanted to study nanomedicine for brain tumor research. And so that, that I was lucky enough to be put in front of these opportunities, and that really helped spur innovation. And then from that kind of snowballed into further projects. And and so there's several streams of funding that's not so different from Canada. And so when I was in Canada doing basic science research, again, I was funded by the federal government. So the Canadian version of the NIH is called the CIHR, the Canadian Institute of Health Research. And they have a certain pool of money. They have programs like the NIH, cancer programs, aging programs, and you just apply through an academic institution and you're and through competitive grant funding, you get money and dollars. During my PhD, um, I was funded by a non-for-profit society because I was doing Alzheimer's disease research. So I was funded by the Alzheimer's Disease Society of Canada. And that's a non-for-profit society that gets a lot of donor money. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and then I also had the opportunity to, to do some biotech research as well because part of my research spawned biotech company. So that innovation happened through the biotech sector. So it's not unlike 
what happens in America. I do feel that the scale and the dollar amount that is available in the U.S. is uh, can be orders of magnitude larger than what is available in Canada. And also it, that may be a reflection of the amount of federal funding from the NIH. And, you know, I think Erica probably could uh, speak more to how the federal funding uh, of the NIH can, can really shift from administration to administration. So the previous administration did want to cut funding to the National Cancer Institute and NIH uh, because at the time they didn't believe that a lot of that funding should go towards cancer research. And there was a big lobbying effort, both by MIT and other academic institutions. And, and they took it up to the Hill and they were arguing that, no, no, we can't cut funding to NIH because that'll decrease innovation. That'll, you know, decrease discovery. It'll negatively impact population health. So there are pros and cons to, to then what happens when we adopt like an Affordable Care Act, or we move towards a more socialized healthcare system where perhaps the dollar incentive for innovation um, may decrease. Yeah. There, the, the other thing, though, to, you know, and you mentioned this, the other point, though, is there is a lot of money that is from private donors and, and other companies, you know, interested in helping co-develop research, right? I mean, like, for example, pharmaceutical companies. That's like uh, probably one of the best examples, right? Most of the, the drugs or the, the technology or the science is federally funded, you know, either from some grants or the NIH, right? And then the pharmaceutical companies then sort of take it over and, you know, spend the monies on trialing. But a lot of the actual innovation is from federal dollars. They're just largely then the, the companies and, and private donors are able to put in vast amounts more money. So, you know, it, it, well, a lot of, well, actually pharmaceutical companies also approach things from multi-tiered levels of approaches. So we were uh, approached by drug companies while I was at MIT to also engage in testing their new pipeline drugs, for example, mm -hmm. uh, in a lab at, at a basic science level, at a preclinical testing level. Um, and we would have a very collaborative rapport uh, with pharma. Um, in a in a very open and transparent way, um, and and then at the regulatory body level, that's a whole different discussion. Um, when a drug gets to a point where they've gone through the preclinical testing, they've done the phase zero, phase one, phase two, phase three large clinical trials. Oftentimes, then you know I think in the U.S. there's also this whole CRO, CMO available kind of private testing bodies that can run those trials that I don't think are so well-developed in Canada. I think largely also because of the, I don't want to say a profit-driven model, but there's a lot more money that goes into these types of third-party companies to run these trials and, and spur innovation and spur drug discovery for profit. Well, it is for a profit. There's a lot of venture capitalists behind the funding, right? So it's, that's profit. <laughs> that's a, yeah. I'm going to back it up a little bit because the profit aspect that happens in the U.S., it's not just profitability of private donors. Of course, they have you know people who are wanting to invest and get in and kind of almost like, I'm going to bring my idea to market and make a business or make a living. But the profitability of the U.S. is not just in that type of tech world, you're profiting on human health in general. And I think that before you can talk about, I guess it's so expensive for healthcare in, um, in the US, is it expensive because we're innovating or is it expensive because the top of, you know, the capitalistic healthcare market is profiting at the hospital level, at the pharma level, at, you know, the EMR level. I mean, there's so much more profit. And is that where the extra money is going to, or is it actually going to innovation? It's probably a mix. Well, I was, I, there was actually, just to that point, there was a research article breaking down the healthcare costs in America, right? It's about mm -hmm. $812 billion per year. And $600 billion of that was wasted on administration. Amen. So that's, I mean, so we say it's like, oh, well, we can't innovate as much. So we need to make sure the healthcare is costly and you know, that we need to charge. And, but 
that's that's such a huge point. Mm -hmm. It's not really innovation necessarily that's driving the healthcare costs. And yes, the U.S. is innovating a lot more, and we can maybe blame it on that. Or is it a societal capitalistic thing that we are profiting on health and education, all these other things? Mm -hmm. So, but, there, but there's also you know. So this was an interesting um, statistic from the American Heart Association. So the research dollars that has been put into decreasing cardiovascular risk has decreased the death rate from cardiovascular disease from 32% to 16%. So that's a 16% drop over the course of 10 years from 2006 to 2016. So, you know, this is a, I think a very positive effect of research dollars and innovation at work in increasing the quality of life of the general public. But one thing I wanted to ask, though, Fred, about that is that what number of people are they looking at, right? Because we know there's so many people in the U.S. that are uninsured, mm -hmm. right? You know, and so for those people, are they actually getting that access to health care? So I, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, whether we can actually say that because compared to other countries, life expectancy here is lower than most of the other developed countries, right? So... It, it, using that as a metric, we kind of wonder about our. Well, I mean, you guys, you guys, the two of you have been in practice in the U.S. longer than I have. How do you feel uninsured citizens? Do they have lack of access or can an uninsured person still show up at a hospital and still get the standard of care? I haven't. I haven't seen people turn away. Mm -hmm. I mean. Um, a person comes into the ER, they might not walk into the most affluent ER mm -hmm. in some suburbia USA, but there are hospitals all over the place that they will not get turned away. If someone comes in with a heart attack, you'd be like, well, sorry, let me see your insurance card. It just doesn't happen. And I mean, Rosie, you were also trained in an academic, mm -hmm. you know, big academic institute. Mm -hmm. And there's, for me, it's almost airing on the opposite side where you have to treat everybody regardless, regardless. no matter what. Mm -hmm. And even people who have no care for their own selves and own responsibility for their own health, people come in and you have to take care of people. Mm -hmm. It's not even a decision like, well, you know, one, you don't have insurance. Secondly, you don't care about your own body, but mm -hmm. I have to care about you because if not your uncle in five states away hasn't spoken to you in five years is going to sue me if I don't, if you miss something or what, you know, so there's a little bit of a litigious environment, not to say that that's why you do something, but we all took an oath as a physician to mm -hmm. take care of humanity. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think to Rosie's point, if someone is uninsured, they're, un, they're less likely to seek out primary care, preventative care, have access to you know, how to decrease their cardiovascular risk, you know, have access to the medications that can decrease their, their cardiovascular risk and or, or other, uh, you know, diabetes or whatnot, right? So, so oftentimes, we end up having to treat or reacting to, med yeah. to medical problems versus being preventative yeah. to medical practice, right? Yeah. Versus in a socialized or a national healthcare system, where regardless of your insurer status, you, you should get access and you do get access to preventable, you know, innovation that drives preventative. I have a question for Rosie. Mm -hmm. Do you think that socializing medicine in the United States would decrease our innovation level? Um, I don't think it has to. I think it's a matter of how we manage the dollars. If I think about where the healthcare funding comes from right now, we certainly get a lot of money from, you know, the government agent granting agencies like the NIH and, you know, other ones, right? Like the National Institutes of Aging. And, and then there is so much private donor wealth here right? That, you know, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? For example, there is a lot of private donor wealth here that can help spark the innovation, you know, and like I said, there's a lot of healthcare dollars that are wasted. So it's a matter of perhaps just reimagining how our healthcare resources are allocated. And then maybe we can provide a little bit more access to people so that everybody has some level of insurance. Well, but there's also this argument that that health technology and innovation has actually driven healthcare expenditures. See, I don't believe that. Uh, by yeah. by complicating the use of cost and effective innovations, and and there was an interesting remark of how maybe a new device gets introduced into a hospital, 
And then to, in order to use the device, you have to train personnel. You have to have increased personnel at all times in order to use it. The procurement and the contract to maintain that device can drive up hospital costs. So there can be a negative effect on the system because of this innovative technology that we're, we're bringing in. I can speak very directly to that right now because I've come into a new hospital system and Apparently, I like expensive things as far as equipment goes, and I've been already within six months have been addressed by multiple people at multiple levels about you cannot use this because it it's bad for a bottom line. It's like, well, the data shows this mm -hmm. and this and this, and there's nothing that's you know equivalent. And they have contracts with old companies that don't innovate, so they're able to give you a product at a lesser cost, but they haven't done any innovation. The reason that things cost more in a in a equipment for orthopedic type of setting, I'm sure it's across the board for all things, is that those companies are on the cutting edge and trying to innovate and they're doing labs and cadaver labs and, and trying to train doctors and it's more expensive to run their company so their costs are up. And I'm pretty sure that that's how it is all the way. Um, across the board with yeah. everything it's just if you are going to be innovating in a private sector and at the anywhere um, your company is going to have a more expensive product but yeah does, and, oh, but sorry, does that have to be actual basic healthcare? right and one other thing i just wanted to add to that too is that is all of these health technologies really created equal too right there are some things that are they really worth the money sometimes, right? And, you know, just to your point when you were saying how sometimes the technology, uh, healthcare technology innovation is driving up those dollars, right? And I'm like, sometimes, like, it's, I don't think some of the technology is necessarily Maybe different. <laughs> I mean, some it, of it's, it's different not. and it may not be worth it. It may not be worth the money too, right? And some of the things like, you know, there are some devices, for example, that are created and, you know, they'll be touted as being uh, more innovative for so, such and such reason, whatever. But if you look at the basic, say, biomechanics of a, a, a device or something, it may actually not be that much more advantageous, but they've got a great marketing campaign around it, right? But and, how do you know what's going to make the difference if you're not pushing the envelope? So like, yes, you can, you well, know, exactly. some things are just equivalent, like for us, yeah. plates, a plates, a plates, a plate, yeah. like there's very difference between, plate, but exactly. some things, but some things are not, and some things do make a difference. Mm -hmm. And how do you know what is going to, if you're not trying to make it, you know, trying right. to see what could you know, some things, some things yeah. might, but you have to be pushing that envelope and that's where the dollars go. And you have to believe in that. Yeah. And remember, uh, Erica, when we did that podcast episode where we talked to uh, Dr. Lewis about yes. VR in mm -hmm. neurosurgery and using, he uses it for every single case, augmented reality and virtual reality. And I was telling Freddie about it. I said, Freddie, you got to get in on this. Right. And, uh, but again, it's the, co the cost of the system, right? Whether it's a, it's definitely a technology that could really change the way, you know, neurosurgery is done, orthopedic surgery, or, and, and maybe enhance a patient's experience. But, yeah, it costs a lot of money. And but you have to be able to prove its effectiveness. And and so can we actually do well, that? Well, this right? is also, you know, similar. We we've had discussions about robotics. You know, yeah. like do we, do we, that all the time. Do we need, <laughs> you know, is robotic surgery really improving screw placement outcomes and accuracy, or does it just add time to the case? And you know, you're uh, gonna have your old timers that's that like, if you can't put it in by yourself, then you shouldn't be doing it, you know. <laughs> like Right, right, right. It's like, I can do it through an incision that this big, like, who cares? Just open it. You can see everything. Like, I can see like that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, what is this? I don't know. It's it's really interesting. The other thing I was going to make, um, kind of mention, and I don't know how you feel about um, this, Freddie, is that all of us also have worked at very large academic places. We, you know, the MIT, the NIH, like Stanford, Harvard, all these places that are very, um, can be very bureaucratic and too big to move. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. are some of these agencies like the the big, like the Susan G. Coleman, you know, like they get all the dollars, mm -hmm. but like, are they just keeping their grants running or is there actually anything new coming from this? Or is it, you know, like what, you're just kind of dumping money into these big bureaucratic places. And are these all just the same old ideas that are just being 
pushed along. I, I've definitely uh, drunk in the Kool-Aid on the pros of being in a large mm-hmm. academic, uh, innovative technological institute like MIT and Harvard. And the ability to think big and to dream big to make change is something that is encouraged obviously, at these institutions. And there's enough funding and, and donor dollars or, or public, you know, NH dollars to be able to drive that. And so, for example, uh, CRISPR, you know, the Nobel Prize, you know, genome editing, that was discovered in the academic institutions, right? In Jennifer Doudna's lab and then uh, in, in Feng Zhang's lab at the Broad. And, and so, bicoastally, there was this huge academic innovation going on. And that has directly translated into the clinic now, right? I mean, they are, they are using CRISPR to gene edit and quote unquote cure certain hematological oncology malignancies. So without that type of research dollar amount, if you think about the sheer millions of dollars that, that has been pumped into this machine of innovation that has yielded, you know, I think I think it's 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 amazing that this can happen at that level, and affect change at so many different levels of health. I think the U.S. is great at being able to make this model a success. I think Canada is also good at that, but I think the amount of dollars that's available for doing that is much less. And I don't think it's because it's socialized healthcare. I think like. Rosie was saying there are just these bigger donors in the U.S. You know, like if we had an equivalent of a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Canada, that would be great, right? Susan G. Coleman Foundation or or other types of, you know, big uh, money uh, heavy hitters, then that would also spur innovation, regardless of whether it was a socialized healthcare or an insurance-driven private healthcare system, right? Because the goal is to improve the quality of life for humans. Mm-hmm. And, and citizens. And it's, it's without the dollars to do it, you can't drive the innovation. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's a pity almost because there's a lot, been a lot of great innovation that's come out of Canada and, Absolutely. and yeah. continues to be. So like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even like insulin, I mean, it came from there, you know, the, yeah. that it came from like, my pinkers. But yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that too, but that, I still remember something. <laughs> yeah. You know. But, but, think, yeah, but just things like that, like transplantable stem cells, like discovering the T cell receptors in cancer. Like there's been a lot of like really groundbreaking research there. And it's kind of a shame that they don't get the dollars. And also, I think the other problem with Canada, too, is given how the resources are allocated differently between the provinces, I kind of think that the dollar, I, I think sort of the research gets a bit siloed there. Freddie, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, it's- I think, well, you know, it's interesting because reading these papers, Canada is very much a price-driven versus a value-driven system um, yeah. in terms of how they introduce technology and innovation into the health systems. Right. Now, certain provinces are moving towards a value-based system, mm-hmm. um, and that allows the hospitals to then take a bit more control in terms of what products get introduced into the hospitals. And hopefully these will drive improved patient outcomes, reduce the demand for more expensive health services. Uh, and and have economic benefits thereof, right? But the risk-averse procurement process in Canada is uh, almost, you know, impeding that ability to be value-driven, which the American system is, right? It's value-driven. Mm-hmm. We don't want to don't say that it's capitalistic, but it's a value-driven mm-hmm. uh, service, right? So mm-hmm. it's just different philosophies, um, and it's. Um, I think there's pros and cons of both. You know, I mean, I, I, I am in, you know, my in surgeries now where we're using products and I'm like, wow, do we really need this product? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, is this product really going to, and what's the evidence that it, it will improve wound healing or it will decrease length of stay or, you know, so where is all, and, and, and I think thankfully, again, there is an impetus in America to be asking these questions. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think if we look at the Med- Medicare, Medicaid databases, it's, it's a trove. It's like a huge trove of data that can be mined and is being mined now for AI by AI, mm-hmm. you know, to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, you know, at some point in time, we will come up with answers as to is a value based, multi tiered, insurance based driven uh, system better or is 
really, or when we do the analysis with the Affordable Care Act, is it really that bad? Or can there, can we have something in between yeah. that will then, you know, address a lot of the financial burdens, you know, that people, the citizens in the U.S. are having because they can't afford insurance, but yet still access using through the Affordable Care Act, still access health care and improve their quality of life. You know, where's the middle ground? Yes, yeah, I, I, oh, go ahead. Erica, I don't want to raise my hand since no one else can see me, but you guys, I have a question. Okay. Um, can you okay. tell that quote again about the healthcare dollar and how much in the U.S. is actually being used on research and innovation? You had it. Yeah, so this was interesting. They, um, okay, so here, here it's an interesting quote. You had it too, both. In the U.S. Yeah, go ahead. Where was where was that? Where Rosie was, that was saying it. He's like sixty. You said the healthcare oh. total is like yeah. It, it was eight hundred twelve billion dollars per year in in the U.S. healthcare costs, and six hundred billion dollars of that was administration. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like administration. So like just like staffing. Oh, like, yeah. I I broke it down here. Um. So they were saying that essentially oh, keeping it the lights was, on, all that stuff. It was um. Yeah. So salaries, marketing budgets, administration and hospitals, nursing homes, private practice, executive pay packages for like the CEOs and the and the profits of the shareholders. I well, I mean, here's another here's another statistic from the paper that in the US, the, the US spends more than ten thousand and ten thousand dollars per person each year on healthcare services compared to a mere $105 per person on federally funded NIH biomedical research. Right. So, so there is such a discrepancy. Like, I mean, such a discrepancy. So you can't, for, mm -hmm. and so just to isolate that point, it's hard for me to grasp that innovation is driving up healthcare costs. Like it might be driving yeah. up product costs and like certain things about healthcare, but healthcare is so much bigger and so much more of a capitalistic type of machine that has major issues and until that's addressed it doesn't matter like 105 dollars compared to ten thousand dollars a year per person i mean it's minuscule like until yeah. you address that other problem then i just it's hard for me to get behind this whole idea like oh well we have to you know keep these healthcare costs so high because we have to drive innovation it does like, the numbers don't support right. that yeah, and it it's really silly I, I don't think so either the stat that i gave was uh, an article out of the los angeles times so yeah i agree with you erica there seems to be a discrepancy in that idea and it seems a little bit more political than it does like uh, a factual <laughs> but um but i i think that a middle ground is possible you know I, there's, like I said, there was, uh, we touched on this before, but there's a lot of money that comes from outside of government resources for uh, healthcare innovation here, right? So we, we talked about the nonprofit organizations, but also a lot of private companies, you know, for-profit companies are contributing to research, right? Now I'm in this world mm -hmm. now and I can speak to it a little bit, right? Uh, I have startup that is going to be innovative for health and in primarily in orthopedics but going through this process and raising funding for it you know you see how many other companies are doing that how many other companies are involved in the uh, health technology sector like there are med starters there is so much money out there and people willing to invest in ideas help them grow get them out into the market right and a lot of companies end up getting uh, academic collaborations like we're doing that right and there are a lot of other companies that do that but they're primarily funded through angel funding, venture capitalist funding. So there's a, there's a lot of money coming from elsewhere, you know, to support health technology innovation. And it's not just government. So that's why for me, I find it hard too, to accept that, you know, um, if we move to a more, you know, like more of a Medicare for all type model that we would lose out on the innovation. You're like in the Shark Tank so. model of innovation right yes. now. Like, tell me your idea. Exactly. Okay. Now how do yeah. I tell me yeah. the numbers? Tell me this. Like, <laughs> you are you're in the Shark Tank model. I'm in the Shark Tank every week. It is. <laughs> but that's kind of what you're doing. You have the angels and they have money and you want it yeah. and you have an idea and you have to convince them that your idea is cool and gonna be profitable and while selling yeah. yourself as a business person. But like, that's kind of like how the COVID vaccine was a little bit, right? Like we need a COVID vaccine. So everybody come in and tell me what you're going to do and let's mm -hmm. see what happens. Well, I think yeah, that was a very unique, I mean, if, if only 
there could be such a global mm-hmm. collaboration as did happen for the COVID vaccine. If, if we could have that type of all in it for all, yeah, you know, I think it would solve so many, it would, it, we could cure yeah, cancer. Yeah, we have we this thing called so breast many, cancer. Bring you know, me your ideas. I have money. Yeah, everyone bring their mm-hmm. ideas. Everyone it doesn't just go to the Susan G. Coleman. Forget about this. Like who yeah, else? Tell me, just, like, let's go. Like, we we have all this cash, yeah. and whoever has the best idea gets it. You know, that's oh, you know, hey, rem- remember back to one of those first episodes that I did with Anno, who basically used a you know machine learning to help kind of learn a little bit more about his genome. We had like with the NF one, right, and. Uh, and that was a truly different, innovative, innovative way of trying to help understand the condition, try to find a cure. But like, that's not a traditional way, right? And so you need people who are able to kind of think outside the box and funders who are able to think outside the box. You know, like well, you said, also, it's not going to one think, place. Right. And also, I think from a clinical trials perspective, there are a lot more clinical trials that are run out of the U.S. that mm-hmm. are not available in Canada. Yeah, that's right? true. So especially in the cancer space, there are novel trials that are being run in Boston and at other places like MD Anderson or Memorial Kettering or, you know, across the nation that are not, they're treatments that are not available. In Canada, I was at the most research intensive institution in Canada, McMaster. And there's tons of innovation that that happens at McMaster. There's an innovation park just across the street and there's like discoveries happening. Now, you know, I, I, I don't know the statistics, but how many of those discoveries that happen in that innovation park actually ends up in a patient, actually mm-hmm. ends up in a product that is on the market in the hospitals, we're using it. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, without having the facts, I don't want to say yay or nay, but my experience in uh, the U.S. and uh, being at MIT and Harvard and, and having been involved in this type of research is that there is a very mature path of med tech or tech dev development um, and a pathway into trials and, and into patients that, you know, I, I'm not really sure is because it, this is a insurance driven healthcare system that drives this type of innovation, it is the belief that innovation will improve health that drives this type of research, right? So it's like flipping the argument around, right? It's not, we need a drug, Uh, a big pharma company is giving us a product to test in a clinical trial, and therefore they're going to make a lot of money off of this drug. No, it's we're running these trials using these novel products that are provided to us by drug companies because we believe this is going to cure breast cancer, cure brain cancer, cure different things. And therefore we form a collaborative relationship with pharma, with industry or whatever, with donors, and we drive that innovation to then improve the health of Americans, right? So it's, it's a different argument. It kind of takes the evilness of, you know, a profit driven medical system out of the question versus out of the equation and say, you know, innovation is improving health of America. I thought it was because they brought us lunch. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I ask why you stuff because they bring me lunch. No, what is it? You can't even accept a pen anymore because it might influence your decision making. You have to declare that pen. That the pen yeah. Yeah. does not influence my decision making. No, what I also think is oh, interesting yeah. too is like, all that is really cool. So two things that I've run into also recently is that I've there's some stem cell things that are going on for wound, or sorry PRP stuff that's going on for wound care, mm-hmm. and we can't use it because it doesn't have a CPT code that's billable. And so mm-hmm. and so until they assign something that you can actually bill, then we have this product that's fantastic and has all the clinical data, is FDA approved, is all this stuff, but there's no mm-hmm. CPT code that I can use for it, so it sits on a shelf. Because we can't use it. Now, is that for your hospital system, or is that this in is general? in general? Has nowhere anywhere in general. In general, no, yeah, and it's been sold before, and people will pay, you know, out of pocket. Just like um, the hyaluronic acid injections, they pay have to pay out of pocket. Uh-huh. PRP, you have to do it. It's out of pocket. There's certain things that are just insurance companies don't pay for, and you have this technology that you just can't use because it's not assigned a CPT code. Therefore, if I can't make money off of it then I'm not going to use it. Just like, you know, what you say, how many of these things are actually getting into people that are effective? And yeah. how, what's awesome about the places where you've been is that you have that pathway of, we've done this before, we know how to get it done, we know how to achieve it. And no, 
the system. It's already a working machine. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of orphan drugs too, right? Where essentially you've created a new drug, a new technology that could uh, that can actually be beneficial. It's proven to be beneficial, but if it doesn't have enough yield in the marketplace, for example, if there are not enough patients who they can actually, you know, if it's like a drug that's for a small subset of patients and the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to make any money off of it, it's never going to make it out there. Right. So there are many examples of drugs like that. I have a question for Freddie. So mm. how do you feel about pharma, et cetera, running TV ads and like, blah, 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 wonderful medication. Ask your doctor if this would help you. Do you think like you could do this for nanobots? Like just run an ad and <laughs> it's like, if you need a nanobot to fix your brain, you should definitely come and visit me because, you know, like, <laughs> just like, you know, but, you... then this is, but that's also, and he's going to get a one-way ticket back to Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nanobots can really improve your brain, your brain cancer. And I, 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 I decline to answer that question. <laughs> 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 but, but I think there, again, it's, it's, um, you know, I don't know about you, Erica, when you joined your uh -huh. current practice, did they do a big rollout to introduce you into the community? Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a marketing that, like, and, yes, I had to take did professional you end phones. up on a billboard? Did you no, end but up I on have a billboard a on a highway? I do. I have a Oh, there you go. And I had yeah. to go like, yeah. come. Right. So, yeah. um, yes, yeah. they did. They did. You know, let, let's just say, you know, let's just say I finally get a real job, right? You know, I finally finished my training and I, you know, I get into practice and, and I really, you know, what I really, really hope is that the innovation and the research and the collaborations that that are going on at, at with my mentors at these academic institutions are going to, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to be that bridge, you know, to translate these discoveries into the clinic. And there has to be a pathway to do that. And, you know, at McMaster, there was a pathway, you know, so my mentor, uh, Dr. Shiva Singh, I mean, she her lab is a very uh, innovative brain tumor research lab, and, and she also has a biotech company, and, and there's a pathway where we can discuss these things with patients and say, oh, there's new technologies, there's new treatments, would you be open to trying them? So I think on either side of the borders, these conversations are happening, but are there more dollars here to drive these types of translational trials? I would say probably yes. It's just, again, like Rosie was saying, getting in front of the right people. Mm -hmm. Freddie know? was actually outlining his pathway to uh, world domination, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a subtext to that. And world peace. <laughs> <laughs> the nanobots are actually getting implanted into your brain. The, nano the nanobots. They're actually yeah. getting they're implantable <laughs> nanobots. We're microchipping you with nanobots. They control Wait, you. Wasn't that, wasn't that what the COVID vaccine was for? Oh, yeah, now we, we all have, have 5G. And, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we all have All of that, yeah. You're too late. You're late to the party, Freddie. Yeah. <laughs> Done Sorry. that already. Gosh. <laughs> oh, well. You got to come up with a new thing. You know? But Rosie, now that you're kind of transitioning into this, um, you are really, you know, leading innovation and you've kind of reversed you know, reverse yourself out of a busy practice situation to focus on technology and innovation. What I mean, you, what are your thoughts moving forward? Well, you know, I have to say it's actually really exciting. You know, I always was interested in research. I mean, I've always been in, you know, in some sort of research uh, work or, or doing some sort of trial and academics. And then when I left, I didn't think I wanted to actually continue in the sort of academic setting. Right. And I, and it was right for me, you know, it was, it was definitely right for me. I went into private practice, but what I missed, what I missed a lot was innovation. Um, and, and then, when I started to, when we formed this company, I mean, essentially it's three very academically oriented people, right? So it already sort of still feels like you're with that kind of mindset. And we are uh, also collaborating with uh, people who are currently in academics. So they, they, you know, they're in basic science research work. So there is a little bit of that. So, but what we're able to do is we're able to think outside the box, we don't have any constraints on us, you know, and so, uh, and it's, it's, it's being able to create something in a totally, um, it's a creative way, it's a more imaginative way, right? And, and just the thought of 
creating something that can impact human mobility um, is what's driving the fire inside of me right now. And not to say that I um, don't enjoy you know, being a surgeon, I still, when I'm in the OR, I still love it. Like I still like being a surgeon, but this is what needs to happen for me right now. And I think at some point I'll probably want to have a balance of the two. Now, do you think that this opportunity would not so easily materialize if you were in Canada? Oh, uh, no, it wouldn't happen in Canada. I already know that, you know, I I don't think I would be able to be a part-time orthopedic surgeon in Canada, and then on top of that, have a company. Um, I think there's a different mentality here in the US, which, you know, I'm currently enjoying. There's a freedom to create yourself as a surgeon in whatever way fits, right? So when I tell people here what I'm doing, there isn't that sort of idea of like, oh, why would you do that? It's more sort of, oh, that's interesting. That's that's exciting. That's cool. Like, I don't think people look at it very oddly, right? And we have money here to back this up. Uh, we have people who are willing to fund this type of innovation because I think that there's a different sense of there in Canada it, there's a hesitancy I think for things that are outside the box and very new and innovative without a lot of research backing it right mm-hmm. so I kind of feel like here I'm not as constrained as I would be in Canada Well, you know, this is really echoing a quote from um, this article, Enabling Health Technology Innovation in Canada, Barriers and Facilitators and Policy and Regulatory Processes. That's a really long title. Holy crap. (laughs) That's, that's, I think uh, that that's a really long title. But uh, basically, you know, I think, I think it really echoes what you just said. And, And from this paper, they said Canadian tech dev is often funded by and oriented to American markets. Mm-hmm. So the the view is already heading down south, yeah, you know, where they can rapidly be commercialized and be profitable. You know, I think all three of us can. Uh, well, maybe you and me, Rosie, because but not Erica, because she hasn't practiced in Canada before uh, that we know of. Um, <laughs> that, you know that there are you know, for example, instrumentation companies that we all use, right? Common vendors that we use. There are certain products that don't make it to Canada. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. That are available in the U.S. And my rudimentary understanding of that is probably because the procurement system in Canada is different compared to the procurement system in in the U.S. You know, so what. (laughs) So this is like my kid in a candy uh, uh, store analogy these days. It's like, oh, my God, there's like an automated screwdriver for plating cranial plate screws. And I was like, oh my God, there's like, wow, we don't have that in Canada. Yeah. You know, or or maybe we do. And it just wasn't in the hospital that I was at, you know? <laughs> so I was like, wow, you know, and and but but then when I found out that it was a one-time use except for the battery, and I was like, oh, that's actually really wasteful. Yeah, it's very wasteful. Everything's that way. Is the innovation driving the cost? Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot more single-use devices and you know and and how is that reflected on but again that goes back to like all technology is not really created equal right and and should like should everything be funded Hmm. (laughs) should everything be funded um yeah there's a lot of research that gets funded that sometimes i'm like wow how 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 Explain to me how. Well, it's, well, okay. So that's that's an interesting statement because at a um, at a recent Society for Neurooncology meeting, Dr. Bill Kalin, who uh, recently won the Nobel Prize for his uh, groundbreaking hypoxia research in cancer cells, he literally gave the plenary lecture. And uh, towards the end of his lecture, he said to the general audience, "For those of you out there who are just." flooding the internet with very low quality research studies just to uh, pad your CV, please stop. Yeah, please stop. (laughs) You know, please stop. And, you know, if I think about how competitive it is now to get a research grant, it's really, it's competitive, like it's tight, right? So if you are not at these big institutions, like these big bureaucratic institutions, like Erica was saying, where we have a track record of publishing, uh, studies in big journals and have big impact, then it's also hard to get the funding to continue doing that research. You know, so 
Yeah, it's kind of like, I, I think it's a double-edged sword where you need money to drive innovation. But like Rosie is saying, there's so many people driving, wanting to do this innovative research, right? So for example, nanomedicine, there's so many labs doing nanomedicine, right? And, and flooding the internet with publications on nanomedicine and nanotechnology and how many of those discoveries actually make it into anything that's therapeutic or translational, right? You know, I don't know the stats, but probably like a very low percent, right? And the technologies that do make it into uh, trials do come from big institutions like MIT, you know, Dr. Langer's lab, you know, the godfather of nanotechnology, you know, his, his therapies that are, that are discovered in his lab you know, do make it into human trials. So his, you know, he discovered gliadel, right? The, his researchers and his team discovered gliadel, the wafer that gets implanted in glioma patients, you know, and eludes chemotherapies, right? So that was a, a prime example of how being at an institution like MIT um, that drives innovation and also has that track record for translation yields benefits. So you know, I think that's something that the U.S. is really good at. Uh, at and that's a, that's a machine that's very well oiled and very mm-hmm. mature. I wonder how much of research is actually innovation driven, or just like you say, patting your CV driven, because there's so many things that are just published to be published, and then there's like the subset of the upper echelon people who are actually like making a difference and like researching things that matter, or as far as. Um, that actually would make uh, a clinical difference. I don't know how to explain that. that that's such a complicated. It's just like people are just like researching yeah, just random that, but that's things. That's such a complicated that, question because the way you know. So I I I ask that of myself. Not that I'm a prolific publisher or or anything, but you know I I do ask myself: Are are my publications actually moving the needle at all? You know, change in practice or fueling questions that are then going to ask even more interesting questions, right? Or, or am I just padding my CV, right? Yes, I am padding my CV, you know, because it's publish or perish. But at the same time, I really hope that, you know, I can also be in a position where I can involve and mentor the younger generation of scientists or med students or whoever to, to get interested in, in writing and, and publishing and you know, one avenue of doing that is to get involved in a smaller impact factor study to quote unquote pad a CV, but at the same time, you're learning how to write, you're learning how to publish, right? And then hopefully as we grow as scientists and as physician researchers and whatnot, then I will be involved in, you know, I would love to be involved in a clinical trial, right? You know, so so what I'm really hoping to do with my mentors is to be able to, from a basic science research project, ask a question that can then translate into a preclinical or a clinical trial, right? And that takes a lot of effort that, that takes not working in silos, you know, like, like Rosie is saying, and, and, and having the dollar amounts to be able to do that, do that type of big study, right? Cause research is not at that level. It's not cheap. You know, the flip side is it, it almost, if I look at the amount of money that it takes to publish a big, big impact factor paper in, you know, nature science or cell, it, it's almost staggering. What is, for example, what would it be? What's the um, easily e- <laughs> well millions, but I'm kind of easily, easily five figures, five figures. Easily. Yeah. yeah. Easily. Okay. And that's not even, that's, let's just say consumables and reagents, not, that's not the salaries for the grad students or the postdocs or um, technicians or whatnot, right? So, I mean, it is it is an enterprise. Research is an enterprise, even academic research is an enterprise, mm-hmm. right? So it's uh, without being in a, in a model in, an, in a country that values that type of innovation, you know, investing the dollars to drive that innovation and the potential, we'd all be, I'd be out of a job, right? Like, yeah, I'm, I was reading uh, in another, uh, study here that there are these missed opportunities in Canada for successful companies, technology development companies to be commercialized, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they had this uh, one um, company from Waterloo, Ontario that developed this IntelliJoint hip yeah. platform, which was a real-time intraop measurement of precisely selected and positioned uh, orthopedic implants during uh, total hip arthroplasty. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. So, I mean, they are obviously um, had a good product and they had uh, improved patient outcomes, all that data, 
uh, showing you could reduce costs, post-op complications, but the company struggled for Canadian hospitals to adopt the technology and uh, eventually had to, I think, move down south. So even in the setting where it was cost effective in a cost driven, you know, medical system, they showed it was cost effective. Because Canadian Canada is a price driven procurement, not a value. Value. Yeah. yeah. But if it was cost effective to use this, like they're driving down costs, then that would be something that that all, mm-hmm. all hospitals. Well, I, it also are. just takes a lot of money to get something like that out to market. Right. So I, it's a, it, they may not have been able to raise that money in Canada. Right. You can, you can certainly use a certain amount of funding from a university setting, but then to actually commercialize something or get it out to be able to make um, some of that money back, you need to be able to get a lot of access to funding, you know? Um, so they might not been able to procure that in Canada. Um, so that, that might be the reason uh, I, you know, again, I'm not sure I'd have to like, you know, look, look well, and also maybe just from a sheer population standpoint, there's 10 mm-hmm. times more people in the U S you know, who, who are getting joint replacements too, who are getting joint replacements. That's yeah. uh, that's a, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, so, well, that's well, going back to socialized healthcare, you know, I think the, the wait list to see a spine surgeon in, in Canada could be two years. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and that never happens in the U S no. I don't think that socialized medicine will ever happen in the U.S. because of that. There's no way that that mentality would be accepted here by most people. It departs so much from our culture to have to wait. Yeah. For anything. Even waiting in line for your coffee. Three people in line in Starbucks. I'm like going someplace else. Make my own coffee. Forget you. No, it's it's yeah. No, that's the that's the thing. It's uh. there is a definitely a different mentality here for sure. And, uh, um, which, you know, but at the same time, there's still so many people who don't have like healthcare here too. Right. So it's sort of, it's one of those things where they'll show up and emerge or we, we still have to treat them, right. You, know, you still have I mean, to treat them, but this is the thing what I, what I was getting at is that there are so many people here that are uninsured that, you know, will not be able to get that care anyway. And even if they come to the ER, they usually come when things are bad, right? And so it's, uh, yeah, I I don't know. Yes and no. I mean, I have so much to say. (laughs) I can't even get into it. About the actual cost of medicine and why there's such a giant problem. Um, But I don't think it's innovation. It's not that's not what it's driving because I think that that's what's driving costs of some products in certain companies because they are the innovating companies that are pushing the research and pushing them and pushing the needle. But, but overall, I think that the healthcare system is not expensive to all of us mm-hmm. because of innovation in general. There are other options. You can choose the, I can choose the cheap plate. I can choose, you know, a cheap hospital. I don't know. There's, there's definitely, there's definitely ways around those type of healthcare costs that make things mm-hmm. cost efficient. But I don't think the overall general healthcare, you know, bill to the United States is because we're- There's just a lot of, of hospital waste, a lot of uh, administrative waste, right? So that's probably the first place you can start, but, you know. Yes. So why doesn't someone just do like this a like huge a whole efficiency, different... a cost effectiveness study and, because... and kind of clear all that up? There's yeah. no way it's gonna happen. No way that's gonna happen. No way it's that's gonna, gonna affect a few salaries. Because it's, gonna, it's gonna affect all the top the top salaries and yeah. that will never happen. That will never happen. And there are a lot of policymakers who have a lot of influence, right? Uh, in politics. So you're never gonna see that. It's fascinating because there is so much waste. And if you could socialize medicine in a way, I don't think it, again, I don't mm-hmm. think it would hurt innovation yeah. at all. There's just a there has to be a balanced system where you don't have to wait two years to see a spine surgeon. You also can ensure. Well, but that's not because of innovation. That's just right. because of the model. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, like that, that has nothing to do with innovation. That's just because the model and mm-hmm. that model will never be adopted here. And right. Yeah. I know there, there's a balance. There's a balance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, Well, I, but I think, I think all, all three of us have been very privileged to be able to work in, hospital systems that value innovation. Mm-hmm. 
right? So we're, we're, uh, I, I think we're spoiled, you know, if we were to go to a hospital system that didn't have as much innovation available, how would that change your practice? So for example, Erica, now you're experiencing this, you, you're being told you can't bring these products. This ain't weird. Not because not... your hospital system is not a good hospital system, right? Nor nor a value-based hospital system. It just it's, is it's a business. Community. It's a it's a business that's community-based, right? It's it's a, a... it's a private hospital, but it's orthopedic mm-hmm. uh owned. And mm-hmm. so just I mean, they're a business, they they are a for-profit business and they want to drive down costs. They're like, why are you using these things? And they're like, we're not gonna tell you what to use, but you yeah. should also look at this stuff. And again, they're I mean the there's value in that too. I mean, I understand that there is a business model to society. You know, you don't want to be wasteful for no reason. If things are equivalent, they're equivalent, but some things aren't. And, and do you, you feel that by using those products, those alternative products that they're suggesting that you are doing your patients a disservice? No, no, they, okay. oh, it's going to be up to me, but they just, they're making, I guess it's been made aware to me that the things that I have used is from a company that is more on the innovative side of products and some of the products that they have come up with in the last five, 10 years are very non-reproducible on across the board because they're, they, you know, research and the patient outcomes are better. And so they're more expensive, but because those couple products are more expensive, so are all their other things. And so now my cost per case is up compared mm-hmm. to other doctors who don't do the things that I do, right. but like, but my patients, like the data shows that they do better. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. I yeah. mean, I can trim the fat elsewhere, but for these, so basically I went through my, so for these three things, I'm not trimming these because I think they make a difference and they're not opposing that, but they want to trim the fat elsewhere. So there's like, it's more informative because I've never actually had to think about it. I've been in places where, it just doesn't matter. You just use what you think is the best thing for the patient and the hospital eats it sometimes. And sometimes the hospital doesn't, but, but, um, you just get to, to treat patients how you like. And now I'm in a more private model where we, they look, you know, we look at such things and it's not the wrong thing. It just, you know, could, there's so many companies and so many things that are the same, the same, the same, the same, the same, the same. Right. So right. like, right. why yeah. do we have to do that? I mean, mm-hmm. You know, can't we just can't we trim that down to like what are the the best things? But again, how do you know until you keep pushing the envelope? Right. So, so what is like, your understanding of why? And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just throwing it out mm-hmm. there as a question. Why are there so many different vendors? Because people make money from it. I mean, like it's it's, it's all profit. It's all profit. You tweak it a little bit, and then you package it a little bit, and then you put like a special clamp in it, and then oh, now I can sell it as something different. When it's really like it's pretty much the same thing, but I yeah, sell it with all. And this a hospital, other- but the hospital procurement would would allow all these vendors in because they want to offer options to their surgeons and or they can market it to surgeons, right? They market, For, us. Like market they market to us, and then we say, hey, we want to bring this in. Right. So you can either, and that's where it's up to you as a surgeon to be able to really, uh, you know, look at uh, these different devices and say, like, you know, are you really changing the outcome by using this new bell, like the, the new bells and whistle on this implant or something? Right. And like what actually makes a difference and what doesn't? What makes a difference? Right. And I've said this sometimes, I've said this like to the reps while they're in the OR with me sometimes. I'm like, you know, this isn't really changing the needle in any way, you know, because sometimes it isn't. It's just, uh, it's just a marketing feature and they know it. But again, you know, unless it's something truly groundbreaking and has a lot of research behind it, like you can't really ask a hospital to absorb the costs of like a new implant that, you know, can do just as well as some of the older uh, implants that are already in existence, you know. Every step of it is fascinating because you're just totally on the other side of it now where where you are looking at costs and I just mm-hmm. have never had to do that yeah, before. Things that you have to think it's like, about. oh, Vivigen. Have you ever known Vivigen? The bone graft from... It's, I think it's from Synthes. I no. like, will like flippantly be like, uh, yeah, go ahead, get me some of that. It costs two thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> how much? For like, like five uh, one cc. Like, like five cc's, and they're yeah. like, I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, I maybe I, sh- I don't really need to use that. I understand what you're coming from, you know. But there's yeah. like certain things like that. They're like, why do you guys even carry this? I mean, like, 
doesn't make that big of a difference. And like maybe in some patients they they do, but I'm like, ah, yeah, sure, it's gonna help. You know, it yeah. certainly can't hurt. Well, but by two thousand dollars, well, why can't you just harvest some bone graft? And, you yeah. can. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's like, that's a, yeah, that's a, I, well, harvesting bone graft takes like 10 minutes, which is like oh. how much dollar amounts for in the OR. So, like, okay. it's and not $2,000 worth of the time. Yeah. I'm like, and there's, <laughs> There's also some morbidity to patients too, right? When you take bone graft, but, um, but like I've had the same experience too with Eric as Erica has had, right? In some of the community hospitals that I've worked with, I've ha had somebody say to me, you're not a Stanford anymore. You can't just like have what you <laughs> It's like, we noticed that you like to use this, but you're here are the five people. You're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's all really fascinating, but I, I will not, I will not till, I don't know. I don't know who will have to convince me that innovation is driving up healthcare costs because I just, I don't buy it. No, I, I agree with you. I think all three of us have come to the conclusion <laughs> that essentially it's an argument that doesn't make any sense. And keep so, innovating. We're going to keep innovating this. and we can still provide. I, I think, I think Canada is equally innovative. Like Erica was saying, if we could all band together. Oh yeah. Innovate yeah. together. That mm -hmm. would cut down costs, that would increase efficiency, that mm -hmm. would lead to better outcomes, research. Yeah. Like let the money go to has the who has the best idea. Not just yeah. in, in for some things, but not always just to the organization that has the name. That's also important, but for some things, like let the money go to who is going to fix the problem. Or has the best idea to fix the problem. Has the know. best yeah, has, has the, the best, best idea to fix the problem. And the and the best plan to get there. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that, that, I think that was a great, uh, off the season guys. too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for, uh, coming in to, uh, do this discussion. And I think we have all come to the conclusion that we can continue to innovate and still give people healthcare. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Great. All right. Thanks everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye. This show is produced by Carmel Sound Lab, and for more information, go to carmelsoundlab.com.